This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, the outgoing chief of the defence staff on Iraq, Afghanistan and the future. Every day of the last four and a half years, I've had to ask myself, is the UK gaining sufficient strategic benefit for the price our people are paying? How do you weigh someone's life or limbs against strategic benefit? Plus, have the Iraq war leaks really put British lives in danger? Headlines. The head of MI6 says the secret intelligence service would have nothing whatsoever to do with torture. Sir John Swords is the first serving head of the service to make a public speech. He's insisted the secrecy of the service is a crucial part of keeping Britain safe. London's mayor has said changes to the rules on housing benefit could trigger Kosovo-style social cleansing in the city. Boris Johnson says tens of thousands of people could be forced out of London as a result. Ministers say his comments are inflammatory. An audit of US spending on reconstruction in Afghanistan's criticised a lack of coordination. The report says current spending is a confusing labyrinth, almost impossible to track. David Cameron's called EU leaders to say Britain can't afford a big increase in Europe's budget. He wants them to back his call for the smallest possible rise in spending. This year's Poppy Appeal's been launched. The Royal British Legion's hoping to make £36 million. Pop group The Saturday's earlier staged a concert for relatives of members of 16 Air Assault Brigade, which is currently in Afghanistan. Air Chief Marshal Sir Jock Stirrup has been head of the armed forces for four and a half years, longer than anyone since Lord Mountbatten. He's presided over Britain's role in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as supervising last week's defence review. But this week he stepped down to be replaced by General Sir David Richards. So what does he think are the biggest successes of his time as Chief of the Defence Staff and the biggest mistakes? Here's Paul Osborne. It's the end of a 40-year career in the armed forces, one which ended with him in charge and advising three prime ministers. But Sir Jock Stirrup steps down with his forces facing an uncertain future after the Strategic Defence and Security Review and still heavily involved in Afghanistan. An unwinnable war, according to former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev, a view Sir Jock doesn't directly disagree with. We have said all along that the military cannot deliver strategic success in Afghanistan. It can't be delivered without the military effort, it can't be delivered without the security effort, but it can't be delivered just by it. So the military effort in Afghanistan is necessary, but not by itself sufficient. It's the political outcomes that matter. Nine years in Afghanistan, but he says it's only relatively recently political leaders have given the country the attention it needs. There are a lot of things that I would like to have seen done differently. Whether practically that was possible is another question. I mean, we have to reflect on the fact that this campaign has only been running in a serious and properly resourced way for now for a couple of years. I could not have a sensible conversation with anyone in Washington about Afghanistan before about the beginning of 2008. Iraq was burning up all the political auction. And only once that stopped did Afghanistan move centre stage. ISAF started uh, with 10,000 troops in Afghanistan. It now has over 130,000. 
I mean, we had um, 4,900. We have uh, more than doubled that number. So we now have a strategy that has been properly resourced. But it has taken far too long. But the reason it's taken too long, frankly, was because of Iraq. And for us, and even more for the Americans, the rate at which we could build up assets and resources in Afghanistan was constrained by the fact that we were using them also in Iraq. Despite that, Sir Jock says progress is being made and plans to hand over primary combat responsibility are on track. I have said for the last um, 18 to 24 months that I would expect the Afghan National Army to be able to take the lead in combat operations throughout the country by 2014. And the Afghan National Army is making good progress, although we have to remember that, you know, the Afghan National Army is never going to look like the British Army. It nevertheless is improving in capability uh, month by month. All of the progress that I see in Afghanistan, and I do see progress, there's no doubt about that, is far from irreversible. And, you know, we have to sustain the commitment, we have to sustain the pressure. It's been a difficult period in charge for Sir Jock Stirrup and one that's seen our forces pay a heavy price. Every day of the last four and a half years, I've had to ask myself, you know, is the UK gaining sufficient strategic benefit for the price our people are paying? Uh, Now, that's not an easy calculus to make. I mean, how do you weigh someone's life or limbs against strategic benefit? But it's a judgment one has to make, because if I ever reach the conclusion that the answer is no, and nor is there any prospect of us gaining sufficient strategic benefit, that's the time that I have to say to the Prime Minister, you've got to get us out. Um, Thus far, the answer has always been yes. Now Air Chief Marshal Sir Jock Stirrup heads to the House of Lords, promising to be a prominent public voice in support of the armed forces. Paul Osborne reporting. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hi, Christopher. Hello. What's your assessment of Sir Jock Stirrup's time as Chief of the Defence Staff then? Well, let's put it this way. The other Chiefs of the Defence Staff wanted him out much earlier. Um, and he said, no, I'm staying. And this was because... He, was... he wouldn't say it that way, would he? He'd say he was staying on to, to help out at a, an important time. Well, he put it that way. I mean, he wasn't staying on for the pension, mind you. Um, but, um, no, he was staying because there was a, last year there was a green paper on, on, on defence which was going to lead to the Strategic Defence and Security Review. And he said, listen, I've got to actually see this through so that there is a review and then I really wanted to, uh, to start it off and the chiefs of staff are saying, no, go, go now. And that was the huge problem. On, his, on the good side, he has been very purple. In other words, he has, although he's a, a Royal Air Force officer, he has kept himself away from the accusation that you know, he was just pro, pro-Air Force, whereas his successor, Sir David Richards, will find that very difficult to say, well, you know, you just think soldiering. Uh, on the subject of Sir David Richards, uh, what do you think will be top of his entry? Afghanistan has got to be top, uh, and it's certainly got to be top uh, certainly for the, na- for the next three or four years. But in the long term, it's the seeing through of all the, the, the difficult stuff of the Strategic Defence Review, and then where it fits into the much greater plans like the NATO plans, like the EU plans, like overseas commitments with the Commonwealth of Nations. We have all sorts of defence commitments, and that's all going to be done. And he's also got to make sure that he keeps in control the other chiefs of staff, the chief of the naval staff, chief of the air staff, and the chief of the general staff. That's where his purple hat becomes Is that going to be difficult, do you think, Fred? 
I think if you were in either of those services, you would hope it would be difficult for him. I mean, you go back to Jock Slater. I mean, he had a very robustuous first sea lord in uh, Sir Jonathan Band for much of the time he was in the job. And when his successor came in, he was a much more thoughtful. I mean, he's a submariner and he's, you know, he's a physicist and uh, things like this. But he had a very powerful general in the chief of the general staff at the time, and that was Dannett, and then followed by Sir David Richards, who just couldn't wait to get on with the job. Now he's in the job. All right, Christmas, stay with us. Well, as we heard, Sir Jock Stirrup's been given a peerage as he steps down as Chief of the Defence Staff, and he's already promising to put pressure on the government to ensure the forces get the funding they need, despite spending cuts. We will need to see real terms growth in defence expenditure year on year for the second five years of this decade. I have made that point very forcefully to both Chancellor Exchequer and to the Prime Minister, and I was delighted to see that the Prime Minister committed himself personally to that in his announcement to Parliament on the review. Well, within hours of the publication of the Defence Review, the headlines were dominated by the far more wide-ranging cuts in government spending set out by the Chancellor. But Defence Chiefs now have to figure out how to implement the changes outlined by the Prime Minister last week. The Chairman of the Commons Defence Select Committee, James Arbuthnot, joins me now from Westminster. Thanks for your time, James Arbuthnot. Um, When do you start to examine the detail of this report, the Defence Review, then? Well, we will... uh, We're at the moment in the middle of an inquiry on Afghanistan, and I think that we will resume our inquiry on the Strategic Defence and Security Review immediately after that. We've already done one interim report, which came out uh, last month, uh, saying that the process was rushed. But now we'll have to look at the detail, and that uh, that we will begin after we finish our report on Afghanistan. And how long do you think it'll take you to go through it? It's going, to, it's going to be a difficult process because, uh, as I think the Chinese still think about the French Revolution, it's too early to say what the consequences are. Um, and this is going to be a process that will go on and on and on. There are many details that have yet to be fleshed out in the Defence Review. And so my suspicion is that we'll do a first... Uh, our first report on it by, say, January or February. What what are the questions you say that need to be answered? What are the main things that are standing out to you at the moment? I think the main thrust of the review is to take a real gamble in the first 10 years of the period covered by the review uh, in order to provide for greater stability and security thereafter. So, for example, we will lose a, an important capability in the carrier strike for those 10 years um, in order to have a genuine capability in that area thereafter. Uh, and we'll want to work out th- how that risk was assessed and whether the right decisions have been made. Um, Getting rid of the Nimrod uh, aeroplanes, expensive and horrendously late as they have become, means that there is again a risk to the protection of the deterrent. That's the sort of thing we'll have to look at. And will you also be looking at the restructuring of the MOD? Yes, we will. Uh, But that is something which will be carried forward in a slightly different timescale because 
Lord Levine's uh, unit is operating now. It hasn't reported yet. And I'm sure that we will want to take evidence from him and from others and academics and from people in the Ministry of Defence themselves to see what they think the right answers should be. Um, let's just go to something, a scandal that broke just before the Defence Review was announced. Uh, the leaked letter from Liam Fox to David Cameron, a former Cabinet Secretary, Lord Turnbull, has now said the letter was written to be leaked. Is, is that how you see it, James? I thought that that was Michael Heseltine that said that. But um, uh, having this spoken, is something that's actually literally just come out today. Oh, right. Well, uh, having spoken myself to uh, Liam Fox, I had uh, an assurance from him that he didn't know where it had uh, been leaked from. I think it was only two pages of the four-page letter that were leaked. Uh, there is an inquiry going on. I just don't know, frankly. The sort of uh, information that that letter contained was the sort of information which needed to be put by a Secretary of State to the Prime Minister at a time of a very important review. Uh, whether it was to be leaked or not, I just don't know, but the inquiry maybe will tell us. If it does, though, I must admit, it would be unlike any other leak inquiry I've ever known. All right, James Arbuthnot, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher, um, we talked there about the SDSR, but in your view, there are two very important things coming up which will be absolutely crucial in our future as far as defence policy is concerned. Yeah, if I were in the Navy, I think I'd be watching next Tuesday. Uh, President Sarkozy of France is coming to London. He and uh, the Prime Minister, Mr Cameron, will finish their talks, and then they'll come out and they will announce quite a lot of the details of how the French and the British forces are going to join forces in the future and actually physically join forces to do different jobs. And this will largely be uh, one for the Navy. You've got your ear to the ground. Uh, how do you see that announcement going? What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's the use of aircraft carriers for a start, use of other ships so you can have a ship that can look after an aircraft carrier. It doesn't have to be a French ship. And it's, there's, there's precedent for this. NATO used to have a thing called Stan Afwar-Chan, and both of them used to talk to each other. They didn't do it very well, but they've now got to do it very well because they're both stuffed because so, they haven't got any forces. Then you have to leap forward, for me, uh, to uh, three weeks tomorrow, and there is a meeting in Lisbon of NATO heads of government and heads of state. That will decide what the great strategy is in future. If you're joining Catterick today, if you're joining the army in Catterick today, you are effectively becoming a NATO soldier. And therefore, what's happening on Tuesday, what's happening in three weeks' time tomorrow, effect will affect your whole career. And you say that the NATO summit itself, which will be taking place in Lisbon, is going to be far more important, overriding anything that this government's going to do individually on its own? Over the long term, because that you, you then become committed it's a strate the strategic picture is what NATO is going to agree. And it's rather like agreeing anything. That is the big picture. That's what we're part of. You know, it's the one for all and all for one sort of concept. And we're in it. Sit rap with Still to come, the fallout from the leaked Iraq war logs. And why is Afghanistan's president taking money from Iran? We do not question Iran's right to provide financial assistance to Afghanistan. We remain sceptical of Iran's motives, uh, given its history of playing a destabilizing role with its neighbours. 
The scale of the leaked documents from the Iraq war is staggering. Almost 400,000 files, more than 37 million words. And among them, allegations US forces continued to abuse prisoners after the Abu Ghraib scandal emerged. That America did nothing about the murder and torture of Iraqi civilians by the country's own security services. The Pentagon and the Ministry of Defence have both condemned the whistleblower's website WikiLeaks for making the documents public, claiming it puts servicemen and women at risk. But it says the papers highlight a side of the war in Iraq that Britain and the US did not want the public to know about. James Hurst has more. For the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, the decision to publish was simple. This disclosure is about the truth. And journalists who had weeks to analyse the unedited files claim they expose new truths. The London-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism says the records have shown a catalogue of abuse by Iraqi security forces against Iraqi detainees and that American troops were told not to investigate that abuse. In stark contrast to the message from George Bush at the start of the invasion. You deserve better than tyranny and corruption and torture chambers. You deserve to live as free people. They say it's also revealed another big discrepancy between what America said in public and what really happened. The US did keep records of civilian casualties, despite denying having any such figures. And analysing escalation of force at checkpoints, they found more than 80% of those killed were civilians. General Tim Cross, who commanded some British troops in Iraq, still doesn't think this mass leak of military secrets can be justified. I don't like the way that hundreds of thousands of documents have ended up in the hands of people who, frankly, I don't know. I don't know what they're driven by in terms of their morality. I've read a fair bit in the last couple of days about this organisation in the round. There are clearly people who work in it who don't like what's going on who sense that there's an anti-Americanism deep embedded in this. Governments in Washington and London condemned the leaks, saying they'll put lives at risk, as they did when WikiLeaks published documents from the Afghan conflict. The website denies this, and it's blanked out far more from these records than the Afghan ones, clearly a bit stung by criticism last time round. It's not just journalists who are scouring the leaked documents, also lawyers like Phil Shiner, who represents scores of Iraqis who claim they were abused. The Iraq war logs add hugely to the evidence in the, in the public domain as to the effect of the invasion and subsequent occupation of Iraq by coalition forces, including the UK. The documents do form an immense historical record. They continue to confirm that by far the biggest cause of civilian deaths in Iraq was murder by militants. But that's not got the headlines, because it's not a surprise. Interested parties will be searching this archive for years to come to see if they can uncover any further new information. James Hurst reporting. Well, John Sloboda is the co-founder of Iraq Body Count, an independent research group which has been monitoring the number of deaths of Iraqis during and since the Iraq war. John, thanks for your time. Presumably you welcome the release of these documents, do you? Absolutely, because Iraq Body Count's only concern is to ensure that all information about victims, people who were killed in the Iraq conflict, is brought into the public domain and properly acknowledged. Uh, the leaks show that the US was keeping account of civilian deaths, something your organisation has been doing for years. Um, what do you want to achieve by this exactly? Well, one of the things that's really important, and it's the only way in which people are going to be able to move on from any war and learn the lessons of it, is if a full account of who was killed and how and why is available. We, we intuitively get this when we're talking about our own people. The day after every British soldier is killed, the name, the details, information about where he or she came from is put into the public domain. The British people need to know. But the Iraqi people have not been given that 
anything in these WikiLeaks leaks that actually surprise you? I think what surprises us more than individual details is the amount of such information that was being collected by the American military day in, day out, right through these years. Extraordinarily detailed accounts, not only of the incidents that were happening, but also very often names of victims, thousands of names of victims that have never been in the public domain before. Did you buy the argument that the leaks could endanger British and American service personnel? These uh, are real concerns, particularly when it relates to information about living people, informants and the like. And uh, I think it's very good that a a much better uh, redaction process has has, um, been undertaken on these leaks. Uh, So our belief is that the risk is minimised and one has to put against that risk the the ethical problems in holding back information about civilian deaths for so many years, that in itself is ethically problematical. What, what do you think of the revelation that of the number of incidents of torture and mistreatment by Iraqi uh, service personnel and uh, 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 security forces against their own people and, and the fact that uh, Americans have stood by and written no further action required? One of the issues with these logs is, of course, that they contain information which is of interest to a huge number of parties for a huge number of reasons. We've had to be very focused in the short time that's been available to us. We have simply focused on what this tells us about the victims who died and how they died. Issues about who was the perpetrator and and what consequences followed from that are really for others to follow up. Our aim is to get all the information out there. Uh, Christopher, you're, you're, privy, you're on the mailing list, the emailing list of WikiLeaks, aren't you? Um, yes. What's your insight into all of this? Uh, it, there are two things. And one particular thing, I wonder if John Sloboda can tell me. Uh, body count is sometimes portrayed as, as almost a radical group. And one gets the idea that the reason to keep all this stuff uh, sent, uh, quiet is because public opinion... Uh, public opinion could so easily sort of switch the other way if we discover, for example, that the Iraqis are dying at a higher rate than we imagined they were. And because we went there, didn't we, to give them a better life, and they're not getting it necessarily. Uh, these are important points. I think um, you know there were initial motivations for starting this work in 2003, but in 2010 the motivation, I think, is, is rather different. It's victim-centric, and the issue is not who did the killing, but how did the victims suffer and has that been acknowledged and and since then we've actually started thinking more systemically about whether this kind of recording should not be being done in every war and whether there shouldn't in fact be new international regulations and norms which ensure that it happens so that all civilian victims wherever they are in the world are accorded the same kind of respect and recording that military victims now do um, enjoy. John Sloboda from Iraq Body Count, thank you very much. Hamid Karzai is insisting there's nothing suspect about Afghanistan accepting cash donations from Iran. The Afghan president was responding to reports Tehran's been passing bags stuffed full of cash to his aides in return for promoting Iranian interests in Kabul. The New York Times claims some of the money was given to Taliban commanders. Mr Karzai says it's official aid. Our reporter, Will Inglis, is at Camp Bastion. I asked him how Hamid Karzai's reacted once Iran's donations were made public. Well, President Karzai has insisted the gift was part of what he terms a transparent process and that other countries, including the United States, also donate in this way. 
He also claimed that the money wasn't for any individual, but to help run the president's office and to provide aid in certain quarters. He insisted to reporters earlier this week there was nothing untoward going on. They have asked for good relations in return and for lots of other things in return. And Afghanistan and Iran have neighborly relations. And we've also asked a lot of things for return um, uh, uh, in this relationship. So it's a, it's a relationship between neighbors. Um, uh, and it will go on. Uh, and we'll continue to ask for cash help from Iran. But the United States isn't happy about it. Well, the State Department has gone on the record as saying it is sceptical of Iran's motives. Here's spokesman PJ Crowley. We do not question Iran's right to provide financial assistance to Afghanistan, you know, nor do we question Afghanistan's right to accept that assistance. What we think is important is Afghans having the ability to shape their own future without negative influences you know, from its neighbors. You know, we'll let the government of Afghanistan uh, you know, speak to how they spend you know, the financial assistance received uh, from other countries, uh, but uh, we remain skeptical of Iran's motives, uh, given its history of playing a destabilizing role with its neighbors. Uh, we hope that uh, Iran will take uh, and, uh, responsibility to play a constructive role in the future of Afghanistan. The reports talk of bags stuffed with cash handed to Hamid Karzai's aides. Has that surprised anyone in Afghanistan? This all started with the New York Times. They quoted anonymous sources here in Afghanistan as saying there are regular payments of one or two million dollars a month to President Karzai's chief of staff, Umar Dawdai. These officials apparently told the paper that the payments form an off-the-books fund that Mr Dawdai and Mr Karzai have used to pay Afghan lawmakers, tribal elders and even the New York Times claims the Taliban. An anonymous senior NATO officer told the paper he believes that the Iranian government is conducting an aggressive campaign inside Afghanistan. He claims Iranian intelligence is playing both sides by providing financing, weapons and training to the Taliban. Afghanistan's had billions in age, yet it's still one of the world's poorest countries. Are people asking where all the money has gone? The CIA estimates the country's GDP per head of population at $1,000 and that the government's tax income is a billion a year, but they put spending at well over $3 billion. So given that the government is trying to use that money not just to keep its head above water, but also to expand its security forces and so on, it's no wonder that it's so reliant on foreign donations. It is pretty unclear, though, just how many of the dozens of donor countries send their help in plastic-wrapped bundles of cash. Will Inglisler... Um Christopher, you tell me that those, uh, those bags of cash are stuffed with euros. What's going on behind the scenes? Well, I think it's very smart. I mean, Kazai says, who needs the pound? Who needs, who needs the dollar? We want it in euros. And what they're doing, of course, they're bunging people. I mean, you have to put out bribes. You have to bribe some of the northern warlords who think the Taliban are going to get them far more control. You've got to sort of bribe people to keep So what do they side. want to happen exactly, Iran? What, what do they want to happen with the money? Yeah, no, what, what are they trying to bribe? What are they trying to get? What kind of influence? They want stability. That's where you get stability. In there. We've been doing it in the United Kingdom. Been, or Britain, British have been doing it since the, since the 19th century. That's how you get things done. And we ain't seen nothing yet. You wait until the big mineral mining companies start moving in to Afghanistan to get these zillions of pounds, dollars, or even euros worth of minerals out of Afghanistan, which they're now discovering. So, so you're They'll be bunging more money than we've ever seen before. So it's all the money that's going to sort everything out in Afghanistan? Iran, Pakistan, and the Central Asian Republics, they, those places are the key to, to the peace in Afghanistan. Not the United States, not the United Kingdom. 
Only euros and dollars will talk eventually. This year's Poppy Appeal has been launched with the Royal British Legion hoping to raise £36 million. Among the fundraising ideas is a charity single of silence. The two-minute recording comes with a video showing music and sports stars and even the Prime Minister observing the traditional Remembrance Day silence. While acts of remembrance have a long history, the public seems to have embraced the Poppy Appeal with far greater enthusiasm in recent years. Why? Well, I'm joined on the line by Bethan Herbert from the Royal British Legion. Beth, and thanks for your time. Um, Not a problem. In the past, the veterans we saw on Remembrance Sunday were often in their mid-60s or older. Now many are in their 20s. Have the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan changed the way people view your work? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, uh, people, the public are uh, starting to realise that veteran uh, doesn't just mean those that fought uh, in the world wars, but there's lads coming back injured from Afghanistan and Iraq who were 19, 20, and that they are classed as veterans, and, and those guys are going to need support for the next 80 years. So, uh, Bethan, uh, just tell us, I mean, the sport you're talking about, uh, you're talking about a two-minute silence on a single. Um, sounds a very unusual idea. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a new idea that we've come up with this year. It's a, well, we think it's a sort of a unique way of um, getting uh, the the public to support the min- a two minute silence and to look at it in a slightly different way by by using, as you said, there's um, a number of celebrities that feature in it: uh, David Tennant, Tom York from Radiohead, um, the Saturdays, the Prime Minister. Um, it's to to get people that. Um, the public that will connect with those uh, those celebrities on a sort of a daily basis, who are fans of those celebrities, to start thinking about the two-minute silence as something that does say, or sort of is still relevant to today's audience and the, the, the serving soldiers of today, not just those who uh, lost their lives in World War One and World War Two. So um, we're hoping that um, with the support of the public, we can get it to. Uh, number one for Remembrance Sunday, and that it really will be something that the public can look to and um, observe en masse again, once again. And how are you going to spend the money that's raised, the £36 million, briefly? Well, the, um, the two-minute silent single will, um, will make up a portion of the uh, £36 million what you're hoping to raise from this year's Poppy Appeal, um, and that goes towards um, the wide variety of the Legion's welfare work. We spend over uh, £1.4 million a week on delivering welfare, be it... Um, housing support, um, employment advice, benefits and money, um, financial assistance. Um, and in addition, the Legion has uh, committed £25 million to the personnel recovery centres that are going to be built in the next few years. All right, Beth and Herbert from the Royal British Legion, great to talk to you, and, and I li- look forward to listening to that single. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. Uh, Christopher, um, just... John Glass had a four-minute, 18-second symphony played at the Albert Hall, and it was all silent. It was all? Silence. On that note, I think we should shut up, shouldn't we? we Had enough should. of us today. Just very quickly, three birthdays today. Who three are they? Birthdays. Well, is David Dimbleby is 72, Bernie Eccleston is 80, and Ahmadinejad is his birthday. Now, three guys in common? Not really. You'll be raising a glass to them all, will you? At the Eccentrics tonight, we shall. Thank you very much, Christopher. Good to see you. Um, don't forget, if you've missed any of this week's programme, you can listen again at bfbs.com slash sitrep. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back again same time next week. Goodbye for now.